If you want to turn with me uh, to chapter 1 of Hebrews, you'll find it on page 1201 of the Pew Bibles, 1201. This is Hebrews chapter 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father? Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds, his servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, in the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand? until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Um, Folks, it's good to see you. Um, I, I hope you enjoyed watching that video. One thing I couldn't help but wonder is if I can't see it in the front row, how's it going back there? Not, not great? Um, The other thing I was thinking, and Stephen made this point, that guy up there doesn't hang about. He he fairly goes at it. So one thing I found with these videos, the way the videos work, so there's always a voiceover and somebody's drawing and it it ends up being this poster that presents uh, an outline of the whole book. Uh, What I find myself doing is I print off the posters. Um, So I have a copy here of the the poster that was up on that. Now, a a warning to you, it's a little bit small print, but it's all there. And if you have a good magnifying glass at home, you'll be able to see it. It's a, a lovely piece of art. Um, I'm going to ask Stephen to pass those around so you have one to take home with you. Just another thing to say before I start looking at this evening's passage. I'm not sure, even if you're here every week over these next months, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to help you understand Hebrews. Okay? That might seem a little disheartening or a bit defeatist, Here's what I mean by that. Some parts of God's Word are, are just, they're just a wee bit complex. They're a little bit remote from our 
thought patterns from our world. Um, I don't, you know, I'll, I'll have a go at explaining different parts of it to you and trying to draw you into it. The only chance I think if you really get in Hebrews is if you, if you engage with it yourself. If I thought, right, you guys are going to try and have a, a read at Hebrews, uh, maybe, but, you know, these, these sermons are going to come two or three weeks apart. If I thought, right, people are going to take their little poster and at home they're going to try and read Hebrews once or twice, in between these sermons, I'd be more hopeful. Um, I think you'd be able to see some of the things that are talked about. If you just have this poster and you just have Hebrews in our sermons, I don't know if we're going to make it. I think if you go home and engage with Hebrews, I don't think it's beyond your, your capacity to grasp it. Uh, we read it in our Bible reading group, the one that I lead called Book by Book. I was dreading our end-of-month get-together when we were going to talk about Hebrews. I was thinking everybody will be raging about how... No. People found that when they got on the front foot and tried to read it and tried to understand it, they, they certainly got the main dynamics of it. So take the poster home with you, and um, when you get a chance, read some of Hebrews. If you're not doing any uh, devotional Bible reading these days, then just start reading Hebrews. There's something to start start tomorrow morning, um, and, and that would be great. Okay, in a sense, we've been spending a wee bit of time, you could say we were recapping what we were doing the last time, because what we've just seen on the video was an introduction, but it, was, uh, it struck me as I watched that, that's a totally different way of introducing Hebrews, and that's good. You've had two introductions so far. The introduction that I gave uh, three weeks ago was, I, I didn't at all look at the outline of the book. I spent all my time thinking about why this letter was written. Who are these guys? Uh, and wh why would an author choose to write a book like this? I'm going to put you over that in about 60 seconds, what we said three weeks ago, and then we're going to look at chapter one. I used a couple of diagrams uh, last time, so um, not, not to waste those. I thought they looked good. Um, we talked about the world of Judaism, and we talked about how the first Christians were almost all Jews. Pentecost. Thousands of people in the city of Jerusalem become, come to faith in Jesus Christ. So the first Christian church is Jewish, and, and we sometimes miss that or forget that. So if you're, if you're one of the first 3,000 or 5,000 that we read about in the early chapters of Acts, you're a Jew who's come to see that Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, is the Messiah that Jewish people have been waiting for. So you remain within Judaism. You keep going to the temple. Um, we read about that in the early chapters of Acts. You stay in your synagogue if you're not at Jerusalem but in one of the outlying cities. So this is how it was for a few years after the, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. There was probably a season in the church where we were wondering which way it was going to go. Is Judaism as a whole, is the Jewish nation, are those institutions of Judaism going to recognize Jesus of Nazareth? And will the whole thing turn to him? That, that might have happened. But it didn't. And with the passage of time, we see that the disciples of Jesus Christ, because of, uh, I guess, at least because of the persecution uh, that they were experiencing, the persecution you read of in Acts is mostly 
from the Jewish uh, community against the early followers of Jesus. It's not, not the, the Nero, the Roman persecution that you might think of, uh, fed to the lions in the Colosseums. It's a different kind of persecution. So there's a lot of persecution of disciples of Jesus Christ. And at, at a one point later on in Acts, Paul takes his believers out of the synagogue. And it feels like this, this seismic moment where followers of Jesus are going to be outside of the mainstream of their culture, the, the Judaism they'd grown up in. Huge moment for them. And this letter's addressed to those guys in that orange circle to, to basically tell them to hold their nerve. Don't, don't go back. There, there are no answers for you anymore in the Christless Judaism. Once you've found Jesus Christ, he, he's better, he's best. Stay with him. What I tried to explain three weeks ago was why I thought the book of Hebrews was timely for us, and I did that with a couple more diagrams. So, Ulster Society, um, uh, we said, if we flick it on, I, I suggested that in, for most of living memory, if a person was a follower of Jesus Christ, a disciple of Jesus, they could sit quite easily within Ulster Society. So we're, we're quite in a similar spot to those very early Christians who were able to sit quite comfortably within Judaism. So you can follow Jesus and you're not at odds with your surrounding culture. That would have been the case until quite recently, I would argue. But I think things have changed. Uh, and there's a diagram to show where I think we're, we are or where we're heading. I corrected the diagram for those of you who were here three weeks ago. I said I would fix it. I didn't move the disciples of Jesus Christ, but I moved the Ulster Society circle. And my point is that I think Ulster Society has in recent times been moving away from its Christian roots. All right? So this, this gap has now been created. So this is why I think Hebrews is a timely book for us. Because our question, what are we going to do? Are we going to stay with Jesus? Are we willing to be this small counterculture? Or do we think there's some way of, of sticking with the, the culture, going back there, that the answers actually lie there in the big red circle? That's, that's our question uh, we're facing in the culture today. This letter, I think, has much to say to us in our times. Uh, and, well, it'll take us a few months to work out if that's true or not. I hope it is. Let's get into Hebrews. Uh, I think after a whole sermon of not getting into Hebrews very much and then another 10 minutes of... Let, let's do that. You've got the text open before you there, I hope. The writer to the Hebrews, I, I don't know, some books of the Bible start uh, at a gentle pace. This one doesn't. It starts with a bang. It doesn't waste any words with fancy introductions. It's not who, who I am, who you are. It's just straight out of the blocks because he, he has a big, big question, and he wants to deal with it, start dealing with right from the off. The big question for Jewish Christians is Jesus Christ. Who is he? We, we probably don't see why that's a big question. For them, it's the big question. It's the thing that divides them from their fellow Jew who doesn't believe. It's, it's all about Jesus. 
Because if he is the son of God, all bets are off, then, then that changes everything. And if he's not, well, go back to Judaism because there, there's nothing for you here. So what the writer does in this first chapter, first four verses, he, he sort of spells it out, tells us that Jesus is the son of God. And then in the, the remaining verses from verse five onwards, he sort of proves it. Now, he proves it in a way that's a bit weird for us. So we need to, to work out what he's, what he's doing. So the author begins by telling us how God spoke to his people. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. It has a sort of a definitive feeling to it. It's like the author's looking back through the whole of history and he says, yeah, a lot of stuff has happened. God dealt with his people over centuries, millennia, in all sorts of ways, but now something's happened. He's spoken to us these last days by his son. Things have changed and they've changed for good. There's what, what we've got to call nowadays a new normal. Things have changed and they're not changing back. There's a, a new reality that we have to, got to get used to. If, if you have a quick look there, those opening verses, in the space of a, a couple of verses, really tells us seven things about Jesus. He just stacks them up. He's the heir of all things. God made the universe through him. He's the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact representation of his being. He sustains all things by his powerful word. He's provided purification for sin, and he sat down at the right hand of God in heaven. If, if we spent even, what, do the mass, three minutes on each of those? That's, that's us. That's a sermon right there. We're not going to do that. Quick, quick few comments on the way through. He's the heir of all things. I, I don't know whose heir you'd like to be. You know, if, if, Bill Gates's will was read, and it somehow read, you know, Christoph Ebbinghaus is my sole heir. You know, that would, that would be a good moment. You, you know, Jesus Christ is the heir of all of everything. All of everything is his. That in itself is, is almost enough to, to say, oh, goodness, it's kind of, kind of history stacked in his favor, isn't it? All of everything's going to him. God made the universe through him. I, I find some of this stuff hard. I'm not a brilliant uh, systematic theologian. So who made the universe? Did God make it or did Jesus make it? So the theologians who love this kind of thing, they say that God is the source. The Father is the source of creation and that the Son is the agent of creation. He's the one who somehow got it done. If, if you love that kind of stuff, go and research that and come and explain it to me sometime. He's the radiance of God's glory. This came out actually in the wee video. Um, try looking at a, a light. Try looking at the brightness of a light without looking at the light itself. The light and its brightness are kind of inseparable because light is a brightness. Jesus, uh, whenever you look at the brightness, you lo you're looking at the light. When you look at Jesus, you're looking at God and his glory. 
He's the exact representation of God's being. The writer probably had something very particular in mind. So in those days, uh, coinage was very much on the go. It, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a, a moneyless society. So the emperor, each emperor would employ an engraver. The engraver would come and carve a royal portrait on some sort of hard metal and create a stamp out of it. And of course, he'd use that then on a softer metal to stamp out coins. So each coin would have a, a representation, an exact representation of the emperor on it. I think you get an idea. There's a, a Caesar Augustus coin. So even in quite primitive times, they knew how to, to put their, their stamp on something, put their image on something. There, there is a thing called family resemblance also. I wonder, is there an element of that here? where um, you're, you're a representation of God's, uh, Jesus is a representation of God's being. Uh, we had a funny occasion. I was out a couple of weeks ago with friends who I grew up with. Uh, so I would have been with these guys uh, probably 30 years ago. And they had never met any of my kids. So we were in a, a large group together and I was chatting to my friend from 30 years ago. And, and he looked over and saw Patrick and he said, he, he, he's not yours perchance, is he? You know, he was able to pick him out of a crowd. It's, it's how it works. Family resemblance. Well, Jesus Christ is the image of his father. He is the image of his dad. He's sustaining all things by his powerful word. He created it and now he sustains it by his, his word. He provided purification for all sins. We're going to take plenty of time in the book of Hebrews to talk about the atoning work of Jesus Christ, what he won for us on the cross, but it's right here at the outset. Jesus came and he won a permanent forgiveness for you and for me. He won a, a welcome for each of us into the presence of his Father God. And the last of these seven uh, ideas. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Some of these ideas just don't, don't mean the same thing for us as they would have in the culture. When you set somebody at your right hand, you make them, you, you confer a great honor on them. And you make them your deputy. You, you make them your, well, your right hand man. We understand that language, don't we? Jesus Christ is the Father's right hand man. He is the one who's been honored above all. He's the one who will judge the world. That's his destiny. So the, the writer here is just, as I say, he's come out of the blocks. He's told us in no uncertain terms about who Jesus is and how great he is. He's just stacked these seven huge ideas. I just want to pause there, maybe halfway through what we're going to think about this evening, this first section. I want to check with you, what, what's informing your view of Jesus these days? The reason I think it's worth dwelling on that is that our culture, I think, has an unprecedented low view of Jesus Christ. If you let the culture tell you who Jesus is, you will have a very low regard for him. The culture will tell you that if he existed at all, then he's only a man, just like any one of us. All right, 
Maybe he had some good ideas, some good teaching. Maybe he was an inspirational leader. Maybe he did some things. Um, but he's not God. God in human form, no way. I got an insight into how low the culture's view of Jesus has slipped. Um, around about Easter time, I watched the film Mary Magdalene. Anybody go and see that? I was just keen to see what, what way the culture is depicting Jesus these days. This, this is, uh, it'll sound judgmental, it's not meant to. Jesus was portrayed by Joachim Phoenix. No. I don't want to speak ill of Joachim Phoenix, but if you know him at all, he generally plays dark, sullen characters. If you don't know him talking about, you may know the film Gladiator. He was Commodus, the bad son of uh, the emperor, the, the villain of that movie. Not a nice character. It seemed to me like a strange choice for somebody to play Jesus Christ. Well, anyway, his portrayal of Jesus, it was so lethargic in that movie and so uninspiring that even secular people hated it. You know, even the, the secular film critics were like, what kind of a Jesus is this? They, they, they said, you know, he was a, a Californian New Age druggie, Jesus. And, and even they weren't having it. My point is that the culture... Is, is choosing to represent Jesus in an extraordinarily uh, low way. There, there's no, no high view of Jesus in our culture anymore. So I'm asking you the question, what's informing your view of Jesus? Where are you getting your picture of Jesus from? We're on much safer ground here in Scripture, aren't we? And we're, we're going to be on great grounds in Hebrews. If you, have, if you have any doubts about your, the clarity of your vision of Jesus Christ, Hebrews is a brilliant place to come to. You'll see him elevated. You'll see him lauded in, in many different ways as the writer comes to Jesus from many different angles and shows us how wonderful he is. I'm laughing here because I, when I wrote this sermon this week, I, I've written here, do you remember the song we used to sing, We Want to See Jesus Lifted High? If you were here this morning, we sang it here this morning. Uh, I didn't know at that stage that the, the boys were going to choose to sing it. That's what we want. We want to see Jesus Christ lifted high. Folks, let's at least start and do that in our own church. Let's be sure that Jesus is honored in here. And then let's, let's find ways to have the courage to continue to see Jesus lifted high in the culture. I think it's going to make, be a hard case, or it's going to be hard in this generation to see institutional Christianity lifted high. I'm not too worried about that. As long as we're still able to see Jesus raised, then... I think we're, we're doing the, the work that we've been called to. Folks, let's move on to part two. So in part one, the author just comes out and he says, listen, Jesus is God. Here it is. Gives us these seven, uh, seven ideas of Jesus. 
what he's going to do in these remaining verses of chapter 1 is to set about proving it, but he'll do it in a way that is a bit strange for us. So we need to work out really what he's doing. First of all, broadly, his approach. The way he makes his argument, what he's doing here is totally normal for a writer in the era in which Hebrews is written, but it's very unusual for us, okay? So in that culture, if you wanted to, to make a case and make it persuasive, you'd reach back. If you were a biblical teacher, you'd reach back and use Old Testament quotations. It's kind of like each Old Testament quotation I bring in adds weight of argument. So in a, in a short few verses, he's, he's reached back for seven Old Testament quotations. And actually, you know, if it was a, if it was a piece that he was writing for uh, an assignment in school, you'd, you'd, you'd kick it out because he hasn't written anything of his own. You know, he's just strung these quotations together with the odd joiner. But, but that's his purpose. What he wants to do is, is just, just say, listen, all that I'm talking about here comes from your Hebrew scriptures. If you're trying to persuade a Jewish audience, you reach back to their scriptures and you interpret their scriptures. You don't bring new stuff to the table. You say, here's the old stuff. Let's have another look at it. And by adding seven quotations on top of each other, he makes a, a very persuasive argument for his Jewish audience. He, he wants them to be left saying, yep, um, with, with all of that evidence, it's kind of hard to argue with you. One, one way of reading these seven quotations is to see them as three pairs followed by a final uh, quotation. That, that's the approach we're going to take. All of them designed to show that Jesus is superior to the angels. So, uh, first pair, it sort of shows us that Jesus is superior to the angels because of the relationship that he has with his dad. He's, he's the son of the father. If you look at verse 5, for to which of the angels did God ever say, by the way, we're not, try, we're not supposed to try and answer that question. I don't know how many angels you know, by the way. I, I'm stuck after Gabriel. Um, maybe, maybe I could scratch my head and find one or two. It, it's a rhetorical question. The Father never said that to any other angel. The Father says stuff to the Son that he will never, has never and will never say to any angel. That quotation from Psalm 2, you are my son, today I have become your father. He says that only to Jesus Christ, to nobody else. The other quotation from 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, that's from uh, a part of the Old Testament where God's making a promise to David concerning his offspring. Uh, he's talking about a Messiah to come. I'll be his father and he will be my son. Some people say that Jesus, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't God among us. Uh, he was just a good man, and other people pinned that on him. Uh, Philip Pullman, the famous atheist writer, I think, I have a book on my shelf uh, called The Good Man Jesus and the Scoundrel Christ, and it, it looks at that theme. Jesus himself was a good man, but other people pinned this deity onto him. The problem with that argument is that Jesus himself accepted titles. Yeah, I'm the son of God. He traded under that name. And very soon his followers taught 
This is, this is just the heartbeat of the New Testament, that he is the Son of God. Let's jump on to the second of these uh, pairs of quotations. That Jesus is, they show that Jesus is greater than the angels. Does a slightly different job. I think what the, the Old Testament, or the, the writer to the Hebrews is doing here is, he, he says that the angels are great. He actually doesn't knock the angels. Um, in, in Hebrew tradition, the angels are held in high regard. So the, he, the writer to the Hebrews is never going to knock them. They have a really important role but it's just not as important a role as the son. Look at verse 6. Talking about God's son, the writer quotes this time from Deuteronomy or possibly Psalm 97, and he says, let all God's angels worship him. Kind of speaks for itself. If they're worshiping him, he's greater. Okay? Son is greater than the angels. Verse 7, the angels are referred to as servants. And that's something the author mentions again in verse 14. Angels throughout the Bible not only serve God, but we're told in verse 14 that they serve all who inherit salvation. Like, that's us. If angels are somehow servants to us and servants to God, then then the Son's greater. The Son is greater than the angels. They're lesser than him. The third pair of quotations talk about how the Son's greater because his reign is eternal. Look at verse 8. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. So he's in contrast. Jesus and his reign is in contrast to every created thing. It all becomes old and all becomes perishable. I remember... I remember discovering the idea of atrophy. Do you know the idea of atrophy? Everything goes to seed. It was a heartbreaking moment. I think when I was young enough, I hardly believed it. Everything. Everything goes to seed. Everything crumbles and decays. Except Jesus Christ the uncreated one. Look at verse 12. It talks about how this decayed world, you'll roll them up like a robe, like a garment, they'll be changed. But you will remain the same and your years will never end. Listen, folks, kings and queens will come and go, prime ministers and presidents, but there's a king whose rule just isn't ever going to end. He's above everything. He's higher than any other. The author's string of Old Testament quotations, it comes to an end there at verse 13. And it's a a brilliant one. Again, he asks the questions, to which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? It's a rhetorical question again. The answer is no one. There's only one person to whom the Father will ever speak like that. There's only one person who will ever sit at his right hand. His name is Jesus, and he's God's son. Folks, that is a really interesting part of the Bible for us, isn't it? Because that's a question that's kept you all awake at night many a time, isn't it? 
is Jesus greater than the angels? Like, I mean, you know, that's been, I'm, I'm just saying, that's like, it's one of the big ones, isn't it? None of you have ever asked that question. You've never asked me that, and you've never asked yourselves that, I'm guessing. Why is this here? <laughs> what is this all about? This is what I mean when, when I say we've got, to, we've got to do a bit of work with Hebrews to understand it. The guy in the video actually told us, but he, he flew over it so quickly. Those videos, by the way, they look like um, quite low-budget, good, fun ways of introducing the Bible. I have a 30,000 Canadian dollars theological education, and I think they're genius. They are genius. They're brilliant work. There, there's a lot of really good uh, biblical understanding and theology in there. But why the angels? It's a question we would just never, ever, it wouldn't occur to us to, to talk about Jesus and the angels. Here's, here's probably where the writer's coming from. In the Old Testament, God's people knew or God's people knew, sorry, that, that he had given his law to Moses. Uh, and Moses is kind of Mr. Big in the Old Testament for that reason. We maybe know that. But the Jewish tradition is that the angels brought the law to Moses. And this is probably at the heart of all of this. And you might say that that makes the angels higher than Moses. And the angels become very, very important in that sort of economy, that sort of structure. So what the writer to the Hebrews is saying here, he's, he's challenging those who, you know, people might be inclined to say, yeah, Jesus is great, but we've got Moses. And we've got the law. The law came to us not only from Moses, but, but from angels. That's how amazing the law is. So the writer starts in a place that we had never start. He says, yeah, but the sun is way above the angels. You've gone right to the top of your ideas of where your faith has come from, right up to angels, you would say. First thing the writer does, he says, well, forget that, because the sun's bigger than that. He's bigger than the angels. I think that's what's going on here in chapter 1. Folks, we're, we're up and running now in this letter to the Hebrews. And three weeks ago, we, we, try, we tried to notice, what's this writer going to be writing about? What's his predicament? What's he trying to, to deal with and tackle? And his question was, how do you warn a bunch of Jewish Christians who are facing persecution, who are facing hardship, who are starting to be a little yellow circle with a big red culture separate from how do you how do you warn them against going back into a Christless Judaism how do you do that and tonight we've seen his answer you show them Jesus you show them that he is above everything and everyone in this created universe he is top of the pile. There simply is no one else. You show them that, and once they see that, you, you, it, it's a little unfair almost. You're almost taking away any element of choice. You make them a casualty of your message. 
You give them a message that once they see it, they have nowhere else to go. And folks, it's the same for us today. Yes, we live in a culture where church going is collapsing. Like you've heard me say that. I'm not, I'm not pretending. Belfast, church going in Belfast is collapsing. Presbyterians have had the, the summer that we have had, the summer of 2018. I, I don't know what, what lies ahead for us. These are the times we now live in. People are walking out of church. People are walking away from Jesus Christ. We need to remember who we're dealing with. Who it is that's at the heart of this church community. Who it is that we have given our lives to in the past. He's the Son of God. He's God among us. Once we remind ourselves of that, then we have nowhere else to go. I, I can't help relating this to the, the passage. I, I think I maybe prayed it three weeks ago in my, and I'll leave you with it again today. There was that moment where Jesus had been doing his preaching. It had been going really well. Big crowds around him. So to follow Jesus allowed you to be part of a big crowd. You were allowed to be part of the in crowd, the gang. Who wouldn't want that? Jesus and popularity and the understanding of your culture. Cake and eat it. Brilliant. That's what we want. And then Jesus started teaching stuff that the crowd didn't like and they walked away. Almost every last one of them. And Jesus turned to his disciples and he said, you do not want to leave too, do you? It's one of those moments, I, I feel a bit weird saying it, but I, I can't help it. I almost feel sorry for Jesus. He's, he's spending his life on these people. He's, he's showing them the beauty of the kingdom of God and, and they're walking away. You're not going to leave me too, are you? And I just love Peter's answer. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. That last sentence is interesting after looking at Hebrews 1. We Believe and know that you're the Holy One of God. If you accept that, if, if we accept that he is the Holy One of God, then we can't go anywhere else. Folks, we're stuck. Um, that might be a very... Uh, <laughs> unromantic way of putting our commitment to Jesus. We're stuck. If he is who he says he is, we can't really go anywhere else. There is no plan B. 
He's the Son of God. 